Good morning, Arcadia. Happy New Year. You weren't as excited about that as the morning. Okay, that's good. We're off to a great start. My name is Frank. Welcome to Arcadia. I am the teaching pastor. If you are new here, we are glad that you are here. Um, and uh, just want to mention that uh, for those of you that were here last week, I know you, I wasn't here, and I just I want to publicly thank Sean Myers for the great job that he did uh, taking care of you guys uh, last week and preaching the word. Um, uh, that's a difficult Sunday to preach on, and we hand it off to uh, this young guy who's training in the ministry, and he just did an awesome job. I listened to the message on the website this week, and it was terrific. He's got a lot of energy, doesn't he? It's really good. Um, for those of you that are kind of wondering about him, I know every now and then I get a question about that. Uh, Sean is, is working to be planted uh, in his own church, and um, we're not 100% sure yet where and when. It'll be a while yet, maybe 12 to 18 months, but he's looking very hard at the city of Havasu, so you could be praying about that. In fact, he's not here this morning because he and his family are up in Havasu. Um, every month or so, they go up there and just sort of start planting some seeds and doing some work. So anyway, that guy can really communicate the gospel, and I think that would be a wonderful uh, work. It's my privilege to be able to work with him as well. So thanks to Sean. Uh, today we start a three-week series, and I know for Redemption Church, if you're not new to Redemption Church, that seems like a really short series. There's a method to our madness, and I'm going to try to take some time to explain what we're going to be doing over the next couple of years, actually, in terms of Sunday morning. But the next three weeks is going to be a series out of the Gospel of John, specifically uh, chapter 17, which is uh, known in academic circles as Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, we are calling it Jesus Prays for His Church. And this three-week series on this prayer really sets the stage for our next series, which is going to be six weeks long, which is going to be Redemption Church's first locally contextualized series. And let me explain that if you don't know what I'm talking about there. Again, if you're kind of new, Redemption Church is one church, but we have multiple congregations each with its own staff and, and elders and teaching pastors, but we are one church. And so we're the Arcadia manifestation of Redemption Church. And as such, each of us is, is locally contextualized, and we're fairly new at this. We're, we're, we, Redemption Church has been a church of multiple congregations for a couple of years now. We have six of them. And uh, this will be the first time that we've ever done a series where we weren't all preaching pretty much exactly the same thing every Sunday. And the reason we're doing this is because we know that every church has its own local community that they're trying to minister to and reach. And so we want to uh, take some time to allow for those nuances and contextual differences to be uh, addressed. And so during that, in three weeks, we'll start that series. And during that series, we'll spend uh, six weeks talking about what it means uh, to be a part of Redemption Church Arizona, but specifically in the Arcadia congregation. And so then Tempe, we'll talk about what it means to be a part of uh, of Redemption Church Arizona, but specifically in Tempe, which I'm guessing means that you have to like college football. And then, of course, Gilbert, we'll talk about Gilbert and, and West Mesa and Flagstaff and Queen Creek all the way uh, down the line. And the idea is that we are one church, but we are all locally contextualized. Here's how uh, Luke Simmons likes to say it. Uh, we are unified and centralized in many ways, but in other ways, we are decentralized and locally autonomous. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that. Now, specifically in the Gilbert and Tempe congregations, they are also launching 
uh, fairly uh, aggressive and large capital campaigns. And so much of what they talk about during that six weeks will relate to their capital campaign. Uh, the last four or five weeks, I, I tried very hard to think of and pray about ways that I could get you guys to give more money, but nothing manifested itself. So what we're just going to do is we're going to do a lot of visioning and encouraging and, and challenging and, and exhorting and, and stuff like that. We're going to talk about what we want to look like as a congregation going forward, not only next year, but in the next 10 to 20 years. We're going to do that. And then after that series, <coughs> a lot of you have been asking about this because I teased you with this a, a, a few months ago. Uh, some of you said it was a tease. I teased you with it. Um, after that, we'll spend three weeks, the three weeks prior to Easter, running up to Easter, we're going to look at the minor prophet in the Old Testament known as Habakkuk. We'll spend three weeks on that. And then on Easter Sunday, we will launch a, and I'm not kidding, some of you know how I can be sarcastic, I'm not kidding, we will launch a 90-week series in the book of Romans. We're going to go through the book of Romans verse by verse. All the redemption congregations are doing this, so if you're not interested in Romans and you still want to attend a redemption church, tough darts, you have to still come here, okay? But we're all going to do it. We're going to spend essentially two years in uh, the book of Romans, and we're going to launch that on Easter Sunday. So, John 17, if you have your Bibles or your apps, uh, go ahead and open up. We have Bibles under the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we don't have apps for you under the chairs, but you can grab a Bible if you want. Uh, the Gospel of John is known as the Beloved Gospel, and specifically within the Gospel of John, John is known as the Beloved Chapter. And the reason for that is because we really see Jesus' heart for his people in this chapter as he prays. And many people divide the prayer up this way. They say that verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, those who are there with him. And then verses 20 through 26, the rest of the chapter, he prays for those who will come to know him in the future. In other words, he, he prays for us in those, uh, those last seven verses. Now, I would submit that if you just stop there, those are really overly simplistic and, and too far reduced uh, descriptions of what's going on in this prayer. This prayer is deep and complex, and there's a lot more going on than just that. In fact, I would submit that the first distraction, that, uh, the first distraction, the first description, Jesus prays for himself on those first five verses, which we're going to look at today, is not quite accurate. It, it's truthful, but not quite accurate. I would say that to say that Jesus prays for himself here, unfortunately, in us, begins to conjure this idea that, that, that Jesus was praying so, uh, some things for himself that were somewhat selfish and self-centered, and it's really not like that. Because you and I, unfortunately, if we're really honest with ourselves, we tend to be fairly self-centered and self-focused when we pray for ourselves. And I have heard these first five verses taught this way. Look, Jesus prays for himself, therefore it's okay for you to pray for yourself, and then no d details or description are given beyond that. And so you're just sent out of here going, it's okay to just start praying for yourself. Well, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. And I understand why that would happen. I've prayed many of those prayers myself, but that's really not what's going on here. Jesus prays things for himself that most of us probably would never think of to pray for, and he prays some things that we should probably not ever pray for ourselves. He is the Son of God, not, sinful, uh, not a sinful mortal. And, and so I think a better understanding of these five verses as we start to dig into it is that these five verses, there is a focus that Jesus has on his unity with the Father 
and the manifestation of their glory together. And the two cannot be separated. The unity and the glory are very important, and I hope to do a pretty good job of showing that as we go through it today. Now, a couple things about the prayer, the entire 26 verses. Uh, the prayer is not, this prayer is not nearly as famous or as well-known as what is known as the Lord's Prayer, which we find primarily in Matthew 6, that many of you probably grew up reciting in church or, or away from church or, or, or whatever. Um, I would submit, though, that, that, and many other people say the same thing, that uh, the Lord's Prayer for what we learn in Matthew chapter 6, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that prayer, that's really not the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. That's the prayer that we're supposed to pray. And that John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that, that he prays. It is also the longest recorded prayer of Jesus' by far that we have on record in any of the Gospels, which I think is significant given uh, how much we are told that Jesus goes off to pray. This prayer gets written down. Whether that was by design or John happened to be eavesdropping, I don't know, but it gets written down in God's good purpose and in his sovereignty, it gets written down. We also need to understand that this prayer follows chapters 14, 15, and 16 in John, uh, which is uh, considered by many people to be Jesus' farewell discourse. This, this prayer, all of chapter 13 through 17 take, pay, take place the night before Jesus is crucified. So this is right at the very end. And, and it was very common for rabbis to, when they were getting ready to go away or if they knew they were going to die, they would sit down their disciples and give them something called a farewell discourse. And that's what Jesus does in, verses, in chapters 14, 15, and 16. He says, listen, I have some really important stuff to tell you. This is the stuff that you really need to get. He tells them that, and then he prays this prayer right after he does that. Consequently, this would be considered his farewell prayer. And, it, and if you look at, like Moses did something very similar, when he was at the end of his life in the book of Deuteronomy, if you look at chapters 32 and 33, he prays this long prayer uh, that is intended for people to hear but it's very similar to what Jesus does. He prays about God and his relationship with God, and then he prays about the people and, and prays for the people. They're very similar in terms of pattern. And although this prayer between, uh, is between Jesus and the Father, I believe there is a significant reason, a three-pronged reason, why this prayer does get recorded and written down for us. Uh, number one, we can learn a lot from it, and we will, Number two, it should encourage us. This prayer should really encourage us, and it does. And then number three, it's, it's a little like inside baseball. Some of you would understand that. But what I think is happening here is that God is allowing some of the, uh, of the veil of the mystery of who he is and the mystery of who the Trinity is to be lifted up, and we get a glimpse inside to see what God is really like in community with himself. And that is tremendously significant, and we'll unpack that over the next uh, three weeks. I think it'll be really, really uh, helpful to us. Now, again, it's, it's really important to understand how this prayer is linked specifically to chapters 14, 15, and 16. Uh, Merrill Tenney and Donald Guthrie, both of whom have written comprehensive commentaries on the Gospel of John, both claim that there's no way that you can properly understand this prayer outside of the context of chapters 14, 15, and 16 and what Jesus teaches there. A and one of the reasons they say that is that the, the narration of chapter 17 begins with John writing this. When Jesus had spoken these words, 
And specifically, the way the Greek is constructed, that refers back to everything that was spoken in, verse, in chapters 14, 15, and 16 in his farewell discourse. As a result, Jesus is connecting his prayer to themes such as him saying in, in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And indeed today, in verses 2 and 3, we find out that eternal life can only be had through Jesus Christ. He repeats that in this prayer. There's also the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come during his farewell discourse. Uh, it's kind of interesting. He's sitting there with his disciples, who, whom he's been hanging out with for three years, and he says this to them. I'm going to go away, but it's going to be better for you because the Holy Spirit is, is going to come. Now, I can tell you, if I was sitting there, the way I would react would be to kind of scratch my head and say, I don't understand how that's going to be better for us. I would rather you were here. But he says, the Spirit is coming, the paraclete, the encourager is coming, and that's going to be better for you. So the promise of the Holy Spirit. He talks in chapter 15 about how he's the true vine and we are the branches, and that as branches, we're going to bear fruit. And, and part of that fruit that we're going to bear is that we're going to love one another in a way that the world is going to look at and say, they're different. They are definitely uh, different. But he also talks in his farewell discourse about how as the church and as disciples of Jesus, the world is not going to like us very much. In fact, he uses the word hate. He says, listen, they hate me. They're going to hate you as well because you're following me. If, if I'm persecuted, you're going to be persecuted as well. Uh, this is very, very interesting. I, I, I know this is tough for some people to hear, but I, uh, but I have to, it just, it, I think it's helpful. I teach at Fuller Seminary Communication, um, but as, as a result, I get to hear a lot of seminary students talk about how one of the things they would really love to do and love to be a part of is this idea of rehabilitating the church's reputation in the world so that the world would like us more. And I think that's a wonderful endeavor, and go for it, and I don't want to be an obstructionist and be negative and all that stuff, but please temper that enthusiasm with the fact that Jesus says they're going to hate you. And I would even liken it to the politician who says, wait a minute, I know we've had violence and killing and anger in the Middle East for 5,000 years, but I have the answer. Well, let me tell you something. If that answer has nothing to do with Jesus, you ain't got diddly squat for an answer in the Middle East. That's the only thing that's going to that's gonna help there. So, he says, you're going to be persecuted. In fact, the last verse of his farewell discourse in chapter 16 goes like this. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, as you engage the world as the church and as a disciple of Jesus, you're going to have all kinds of trouble and challenges and issues that you may not even have if you weren't a disciple of Jesus, but take heart, I'm with you. I'm with you. I can give you strength and power to do that. Now, the big idea for today, these five verses, is really very simple. It's this. Jesus and the Father are unified and glorified. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to go back and read the passage one more time, those five verses that Eugene read for us. I'm going to read it again because I want, it's just good to get God's word as deep into our soul and, our, and, and into our hearts as possible. And so we're going to read it again and just continue to bathe ourselves with God's word. Then I'm going to go through it kind of verse by verse and unpack some things. And then we're going to close with, I think, a fairly significant point of application for all of us. So uh, look at verses 1 through 5, John 17. Here we go. John writes, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, 
let me just stop there for a second. I, I think it's interesting. I'm, I, somebody asked me this morning where the origin of our prayer posture in 21st century uh, America came from, which is essentially heads bowed and eyes closed, right? Anybody, ha don't raise your hand. And I, I'm t I will tell you, I have a Southern Baptist background. If you have a Southern Baptist background, at the end of every service, you are told what? Bow your heads, close your eyes, okay? And so that's kind of our understanding, our posture for prayer. Even when I pray with you, I ask you, would you close your eyes and bow your heads, okay? That was not the posture that they had in the first century, uh, especially for Jews and rabbis. Uh, th their posture would be to actually stand and look up to heaven, ostensibly, open their eyes and even stand with their, ours, uh, their arms open. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And then he says this, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you, have given authority, uh, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he starts the prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Now, this is interesting because this is in contradistinction to the rest of the Gospel of John, where several times Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. The first time he says it is to his mother in chapter 2, verse 4, when there's a shortage of wine, and she comes and asks him to do something about it, and he says, woman, my time has not yet come. Says it again in chapter 7, he says it in a, in a few other places as well, but now he says, my time has come, my hour has come. What does he mean by that? Well, Andreas Kostenberger, who fairly well represents the scholarly community on this, writes this about this. He writes that Jesus' hour is the time at which his saving work through his atoning death is accomplished on the cross. The time he is specifically talking about is that moment in time when everybody's sin is placed on Jesus on the cross and there is a transaction where our sin is paid for, where he takes on our unrighteousness and we are given his righteousness. That's the time. That is the hour. And he said that time has finally come. It, it is the consummation of the most essential and important act of salvation history, and that is the atonement on the cross. Kostenberger goes on to say this, God the Father would not allow this to happen, Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and eventual resur resurrection, until Jesus' earthly ministry, all that the Father had given him to do, was complete. Well, Jesus had finished his earthly ministry, the only thing left to do was go to the cross. And so he's saying, it's, it's time. And it's just a few hours uh, away, as a matter of fact. Then Jesus says, and this is maybe the most difficult part of the, of the prayer to unpack and understand. He says, glorify your son. He says, glorify me. I, 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 this morning, did you get up this morning and say, God, glorify, glorify me? Okay. He says, glorify me. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Now, I get this. I've had many people come to me and talk to me about this. Not this week. I just mean in my Christian life. And they say, this sounds a little self-aggrandizing. It sounds, sounds a little self-centered. It sounds a tad narcissistic for Mr. Humility to be praying, give me glory. I've even been told more than a couple of times, I've, I've, people have used this illustration. It says, it, it's kind of like when an NFL defensive lineman sacks the quarterback 
And, and then he's just doing his $3 million a year job, you understand. That's what he's supposed to do is sack the quarterback. But in doing his job, he sacks the quarterback, and then he gets up and he starts dancing and pumping his fists and, and beating his chest and yelling and screaming and dancing and all, this, and all this stuff and essentially yelling, look at the glory of me. Look at my glorious, you need to revel in my glory, this glory that just took place. You've seen that on television, I'm sure. Not quite. Not really what's going on here in this prayer. So I want to spend just a little bit of time here. We need to talk about what Jesus prays subsequent to this request because he prays three things that give us context and help us to understand what he really means when he says glorify your son. First he says glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So right away we see that Jesus is not grabbing glory for himself. He's not grabbing glory for his own pleasure or benefit, but rather he is asking for glory so that he can give it back to his father. He's asking for glory so that he can reflect it back on him. So that's the first thing that we understand. It's a very selfless, not selfish uh, request. Second, he says, right after that, he says, since you have given me authority over all flesh. Literally, authority over all flesh, what that means is that Jesus has power, authority, sovereignty, and dominion over the human race. But what Jesus is humbly acknowledging in that prayer, if you look at the nuance, is that all of this authority that he has over the human race, he only has because the Father has granted it to him. So let me ask you a question. How often do you see a human being who gets authority and power from something or someone else and then sets out and specifically uh, without fail, uses that glory and a power and power for the benefit and pleasure uh, of the person or thing that gave him or her that glory or power in the first place. Not very often. We might intend to do that. We might think we're going to do that. But generally speaking, I've been in the marketplace a long, long time. I know what people, how beha people behave when they've been given glory, when they've been given power and authority. Generally, they use it for their own purposes, their own pleasure, and their own benefit. In fact, many times, they'll just begin to hoard it, and they won't give it away. And certainly, they will not reflect it back to the person or the thing that gave it to them in the first place. Yet we know that the glory and the authority and the power that Jesus was given was used for the sacrificial and selfless purpose of giving it back to his father, of reflecting it back to him, and of saving you and me from the consequences of sin in our life. So you simply cannot argue that what Jesus is doing here is anything like what natural human beings would do. And then third and finally, the purpose of this glory, the text says, the prayer says, is to give eternal life to all whom have been given to Jesus. So the purpose of the glory is to save you and me from the eternal consequences of our sin. So once again, it's a very selfless act that he is taking this glory upon himself. This is not an NFL lineman. Uh, this is not a Hollywood starlet who puts on an overpriced ugly dress and starts preening for the paparazzi. It is nothing like either of those things. Furthermore, we also need to come to grips with the fact that this is an affirmation of the deity of Jesus, that he is God. The only reason that he could pray this prayer, that he would receive the glory that he's asking for, is because he is God. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 1. The first, <coughs> excuse me, the first verse of his farewell discourse is what I would say is one of the most too quickly passed over verses in Scripture. It goes like this. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In their context, we tend to run right by that, but in their context, that would have been a mind-blowing statement to the people who were sitting there. 
Because they have been taught all of their lives that they are just to believe in God, the one true God, Yahweh. And Jesus just said, believe in God, but believe also in me. What he's saying is, I'm God. And, and, and many people would have considered that blasphemy. In fact, many people did consider it blasphemy. It's part of why he ended up going to the cross. So that was a, a mind-blowing statement in that, in that, in that case. And, and when you pair that up with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, you begin to understand what Jesus is doing here. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you can have the mind of Christ. And Paul is saying, take advantage of that. Look at the world the way Jesus looked at it. And then he explains how Jesus looks at things. He said, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, or literally in the Greek, something to hang on to for dear life, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So what is it that Jesus emptied himself of? He emptied himself of his glory, not his deity. When he came to the earth, when he came as the incarnate God, God in the flesh, he had to leave his glory behind. He didn't leave his deity behind. He was fully God and fully man, but he did have to leave his glory behind. And so we need to understand that Jesus exists eternally. He's part of the eternally existing Trinity. But while on earth, he had to leave that glory behind in order to be able to do the work of the Father, which was to save his people, to restore us to the Father. And he had to do that because he is God. And we see this in verse 5 as well, where Jesus prays. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's asking that he gets his glory back when he goes to heaven. Now, how will the Father glorify Jesus? How will his glory be restored? This is another reason why we know that this is not about NFL defensive linemen and Hollywood starlets. Jesus is going to be glorified by his Father through crucifixion. Through crucifixion. And it's not that Jesus really wanted to do the crucifixion. If you remember... Right after this, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and one of the things he says to his father there is, will you take this cup from me? Will you let this cup pass before me? In other words, he's saying, if there's a plan B, an alternate plan to the, to the cross, let's wheel it out and talk about it right now. But it's interesting in that almost immediately, it's almost like he got those words out, could we look at a different plan, and, and, and almost immediately he thinks better of it and says, no, 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 but not my will, your will be done. In other words, he submits in obedience to the plan that the Father has for the redemption of his people, which is crucifixion. And how will Jesus glorify the Father? Same thing, through the crucifixion. The Father is honored and glorified through the Son's obedience. Can't you and I also honor and glorify God through our obedience? Not a trick question. The answer is yes. But also, Jesus glorified the Father in his earthly ministry by doing everything that he had been given to do. But by, by, through his ministry and through his teaching. And we see that in verse 4. Jesus glorified the Father by doing everything he was given to do. And then in verse 3, we actually have salvation, eternal life defined. Jesus prays, and this is eternal life, this is salvation, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I'm going to do something I, I hardly ever, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to stop preaching right now, 
I'm not preaching right now. I'm going to ask a very pointed question. Do you know Jesus? And if you don't, it's time that you do. I, I don't know why you're here today. Maybe you know him. Okay, if you already know him, praise God, good for you. Pray for those in this room right now who don't know him. If you're here and you don't know him, maybe you're here for the first time and you're going, I can't believe this. Why is he doing this now? Because it's in the text. That's why I'm doing it now. You might be here because you lost a bet to a friend and they're sitting next to you. You might be here today because you, it's a New Year's resolution that you're going to start going to church. But the real reason you're here is because this is part of God's sovereign plan for your life. We don't believe in coincidences. And every week we talk about Jesus saving us, but it's not every week that I am going to ask this question this directly, this pointedly, and for some of you this uncomfortably. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, he is the answer that you've been looking for and searching for your entire life. And I know that some of you may be going, well, that's really easy for the pastor to say. I mean, of course the pastor is going to say that he's probably got a quota, he's got his annual review coming up, he's got to get a lot more people in here, you know, all of that stuff. Of course he's going to say that. Well, I'm going to say it, of course, but not for those reasons. I'm going to say it because it's true. Jesus, Jesus even said in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And listen to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come in here to yell at us. He came in here rather in order that the world might be saved through him. And again, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father ex except through me. So if you're sitting there trying to rationalize all the reasons why this is happening and it's not fair, that's Satan speaking to you right now. He's trying to get in the way of this moment where God is acting sovereignly in your life. You are being confronted, not by me, but by the Holy Spirit with the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening right now. So I implore you, come to Christ. And guess what? I know this sounds really convenient. That's just the way God is. Thank you, God. We'll baptize you next week if you do. So after the service, come down here, talk to, talk to some of the people who are down here, talk to the person who brought you, and we'll take care of that. And I did make this promise to Josh, and I said it publicly in the first service. I have a very busy next week next week, but no matter how many people want to get baptized, I'll speak to every single one of them about getting baptized next week if you want to do that. I'll set whatever I have on the sideline and do it some other week. So when they talk about going to the Connect Desk and, and asking about baptism, you're going to get a call from me or an email from me. So be prepared for that. Now I'm going to start preaching again, so put it back on your preaching ears. Now there's one thing we really need to understand about knowing God. Knowing God is not merely intellectual understanding, but it is fellowship. It is intimate relationship. Now I've I got to stop here again now and just say, I'm going I'm to speak to the guys in the room now. Okay, I know I, I'm a guy, I understand guys, I've been around guys for a long time. I even have a brother, okay? And I know that that word intimate is a problem for most guys. We don't like the word intimate. It it's the feelings and the emotions and all, we, we're, we don't, we want, we go back to talking about the NFL defensive lineman, please, Frank. We, we don't, we, the only reason that we like the word intimate is if it's involved with apparel. We don't like intimacy at all. But you need to understand that what we're talking about here is a spiritual and emotional intimacy where you actually know the creator God of the universe. And you can do that. And Jesus prays that for you. It, it, it's like this. I, my wife, 
Her name is Jackie. Many of you know. I could know all about Jackie. I, I, could, I could know everything there is to know about her. I could know all of her stats, okay? She's 5'6", and other stuff, and I could just tell you everything that I have, you know, she's a volleyball coach. I can know all about her, but really not know her. I would much rather know her. I would much rather know her intimately, emotionally, spiritually, yes, of course, physically, but I want to know her. I want to be able to, I want to know her in such a way that there are times when I can't even articulate what it is that I know about her, but I know it and I love it. That's the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about here. It's knowing in an intimate way. So guys, it's okay to use the word intimate and be in an intimate relationship with the Lord, the Savior, the Creator God of the universe. And I even wore this salmon-colored shirt today to prove that a real man can wear a pink shirt and talk about knowing God intimately. So it's okay. It's okay. He is the bodily manifestation of the one true God. And we go back to verse 5 one more time to see that. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Colossians is one place where we know that, that, that uh, the whole world was created through Jesus. It's also confirmed in, in the Gospel of John. In fact, the Gospel of John starts with these words in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Now, the editors of the ESV Study Bible, which is this uh, Bible here, which is the best study Bible you can get. It's a really good Bible. They write this about verse 5. Verse 5 implies that the material universe is not eternal, but was brought into existence by God. Before that, nothing existed. But God existed eternally, no beginning or end, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here Jesus speaks of sharing his glory between the Father and the Son prior to creation, as Philippians chapter 2 indicates, implying that there was a mutual giving of honor in the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity for all eternity. A couple of authors have actually written about this relationship that the, the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have with each other. One of them is, is John Ortberg. And they talk about how each member of the Trinity, of the Godhead, behaves in, in terms of yieldedness and shyness towards one another. You know, you get three alpha dogs in, in the same room together, and you don't have a lot of yielding and shyness going on. You have three individuals who are trying to dominate and take charge of each other. If ever there was anybody who could dominate, who had the power and the authority to dominate and take charge of each other, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Godhead, but that's not what they do. It's a beautiful example of how we are supposed to behave towards each other in humility, in submission, in yieldedness, in shyness. Uh, you read through scripture and you find that the members of the, uh, of the Trinity are constantly pushing each other forward and advocating for each other and, and, and giving glory to each other and not taking glory for themselves. You see that as a constant theme. And I know some of you are even thinking that, that word yield and yieldedness, that sounds like an old, uh, kind of an old-fashioned, archaic word. But I love that word, yieldedness. To yield literally means that you have the right of way, but you're going to set your right aside in order that somebody else might take your place. That's literally what it means, and that's a beautiful picture of how we're supposed to behave with each other in the church as well. 
So verse 5 is yet another affirmation of Jesus' deity. And, and again, the big idea of these five verses is that the deity, glory, and unity of God are all on display in Jesus. And this glory that we talked about so much cannot be accomplished without the unity. There's no way of separating those two things. And so this part of the prayer is as much about unity as, a, as it is about anything. Jesus was obviously concerned about unity with the Father, and so I want to close in our last few minutes with a discussion about unity as it relates to us and as it relates to our relationship with God. I would suggest to you that in order to be unified with somebody, to be in union with somebody else, you essentially need five characteristics, and here they are. Number one, you need humility. And you see in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus had that humility. That's one of the things that made him such a powerful part of the Trinity. He had that humi humility. You and I also both, as Paul says in Philippians 2, we need to consider others better than ourselves. That's what it means to be humble. Uh, number two, we need to be willing to submit. We need to practice submission to each other, mutual submission. And again, you see that in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, be submissive to each other just as Christ was submissive to his Father. And then number three, we need obedience. Yeah, we need to obey each other. And, and I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Right away you're going, oh man, this, humility, submission, obedience, these are words that our culture, they do not value very much. They value just the opposite. But you need to understand that the Christian faith, what Jesus did, and how the church is supposed to act is supposed to be countercultural. We are supposed to be different. Not odd, but different. Tremendously different. And then number four, we need good communication with each other. Not just communication, but we need good communication. And a lack of communication is always a problem. By the way, when it comes to God, he's communicated to us through his word, He's asked us to communicate to him through prayer, and then we, he's asked us to be in community with each other where we communicate to each other and we communicate to each other about God's plan in our lives. So communication is really, really important. Um, some of you in the marketplace have probably experienced something called information isolation. Uh, you, you're working at a place and suddenly you begin to feel like maybe you're not getting all the memos and they're starting to withdraw information from you they're not communicating with you as freely as they once did and you never like that feeling do you well research has shown and a psychologist has written about this that here's what he says about a lack of communication i say this all the time because it's so true i find this in the church too uh, it, when, when when there's a lack of communication people will always connect the dots in the most pathological and unhealthy way possible in other words, when we feel like we're not being communicated with as we think we deserve, our mind never goes to the best case scenario. It always goes to the worst case scenario. It always goes to the most negative possible thing that could happen. And then starts, then you start with the negative attributions of all the people who are not communicating with you. And that's where conflict starts. And that's where misunderstanding starts. And so communication is very, very important. When you're not communicating with God through his word and through prayer and through community, you begin to feel that way, as a matter of fact. And then number five, we need love. We need that unconditional agape love, and we need that affectionate philia love that first peter talks about 
And if you just read the Gospel of John, you see that love is everywhere in there. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And of course, that love also means sacrifice. Just as Jesus went to the cross for us, he also calls us, if we're to follow him, to deny ourselves and daily take up our cross in order to follow him. And that, and that, that, that means loving each other in a sacrificial way. Now, for us, unity with God has been said by the scholars to come in two different types or two different brands, and they're related, but they're different. And I want to close by, by talking about that a little bit and explaining that and hopefully helping us to understand how some of this stuff works. These two different kinds of unity with God are called union with God and communion with God. Uh, now, of, of union and communion with God, the great Puritan, John Owen, writes these words. This is two paragraphs, but it's really good. He writes this, Believers are united to Christ in God by the Holy Spirit. This union is a unilateral action by God. And if you were here last week and heard Sean preach on Ezekiel 16, he must have said that over and over and over. God chooses and loves us of his own good purpose and pleasure. It has nothing to do with us. It is a unilateral action. So Sean's been reading the Puritans. This union is a unilateral action by God in which those who were dead are made alive, those who lived in darkness begin to see the light, those who were enslaved to sin are set free to be loved and to love. When one speaks of union, it must be clear that the human person is merely receptive, humbly being the object of God's gracious action. Communion with God, however, is distinct from union. Those who are united to Christ are called to respond to God's loving embrace. While union with Christ is something that does not ebb and flow, one's experience of communion with Christ can fluctuate. And it fluctuates according to the orientation of the disciple, not God. In other words, his submission, obedience, and humility. So understand, part of our unity with God is fixed and secure, but part of our unity with God is fragile. Part of our unity is fixed, part of it is fragile. Uh, Brian Chappell and Justin Taylor have put together this little grid that I th find helpful. If you look up on the screens, you'll, you'll see what they've done. On the right side, you see what is union with God. In other words, what cannot change in our relationship with God. Our adoption cannot change. Once he's taken us, we can never be un unadopted by God. Uh, God's desire for our welfare, whether we realize it or not, whether we feel like it or not, God always wants what's best for us. It doesn't always feel like that, I know, but that's what he wants, his desire for our good welfare, God's actual affection towards us. In other words, no matter how you feel that God uh, feels about you, he really does have tremendously positive affection for us, God's love for us, our destiny never changes, heaven, ultimate destiny, and our security, the fact that no matter what, we will be there. A friend of mine always says this, um, those of you who are in Christ now are assured of heaven as the saints who are already there. What can change, however, this is where we talk about communion with God, and it's dependent on us, not on God. What can change is our fellowship. We are still adopted by God, but our feeling of being in fellowship with him can change, and it usually changes when we begin to do things that we know uh, do not honor and glorify God, when we begin to sin. 
And it's not that God has walked away from us, but it's because we're starting to feel like God is unhappy with us, and so we just start to naturally walk away from Him. So our fellowship is affected that way. Our experience of God's blessing. If we're in the midst of sin, God is probably not going to spend a lot of time blessing you in the midst of that. He has desire for our welfare, but He's going to withhold blessing from us if we're rebelling against Him. Also, our assurance of God's love can change. From our perspective, we can feel like God doesn't love us anymore. We can feel that way, but it's not true. He still does, but because of the sin in our lives, it it can make us feel like he doesn't love us anymore. God's delight in our actions can change. Certainly, he's not going to be delighted if we're constantly rebelling against him, even though he still loves us. And then certainly God's discipline can ebb and flow with our behavior and our sin. Certainly he'll discipline us more when we're in sin more. Uh, Hebrews talks about that. And he's disciplining us because we're his children and he loves us. And then our sense of guilt. Our security hasn't changed, but I'm telling you, I I, I feel this too. I I get involved in, in some sin, some way where I'm rebelling against God, some way where I'm missing the mark with God, and I begin to feel guilty. I begin to have this sense of dread and guilt. And and my friend Tom says it this way. You feel guilty because you are guilty. You have been committing these offenses against God. But it doesn't change the fact that he loves us and has affection for us. And our destiny is heaven and that we are secure in that. And of course the common denominator for all the problems with communion have to do with sin. With missing the mark of God. Now here's why this exercise is helpful. This union-communion distinction protects a very important biblical truth that goes like this. The children of God have a relationship with their Lord. And as a relationship, there are things that can either help or hinder that relationship. Right? When the believer grows comfortable with sin, it will affect the level of intimacy that person feels with God. It is not that God's love grows and diminishes for his followers in accordance with their actions, for his love never wavers. Rather, what happens is we run from God in our sin. God is always walking the straight line. We're the ones that are all off in goofiness. See, our, our sin tends to isolate the believer, making him or her feel distant from God, Then come the Satanly accusations, not the saintly accusation. These are the Satanly accusations. This is this is uh, the devil and 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 his band of demons whispering in your ear when you sin. See, you're really not good enough. See, you're a jerk. See, you you missed the mark. See, God couldn't possibly love you. God, this God, God isn't going to want anything to do with you. Look at how awful you are. And so the Satanly accusations come, which can make us worry that we are now under God's wrath. In truth, however, we are not under God's wrath. We are standing in the safe shadow of his cross. That's the point. Our our union with God is never changed. But our feeling of being in communion with him can certainly change based on our own actions and behavior. Well, that's the gospel. That's the definition of the gospel. It's all him and nothing to do with us, but it's born out of his absolute tremendous love for you and me and that is clearly stated in verses two and three of this prayer where jesus says i did the work that i was supposed to do which was to save his people from their sin and and set up the kingdom of god here on earth with his followers he did the work and that work was accomplished through the sacrifice of the cross 
And you can know Jesus as a result of that. So that's my prayer for you this morning, that you would know him, that he would invade your life, that his spirit would change your heart and invade your mind and turn you into a new creation. Let me pray as Sean comes to lead us in in, uh, the Lord's Supper. God, I just pray for those in this room right now who don't know you. I do lift them up and ask that you would work in their lives. God, that that you would open their hearts and their minds to who you are, the reality of you. God, I just pray that they would feel your love right now, your presence, that, that you have done all of this with, with them in mind, with them specifically in mind. And God, I also pray for those of us who do know you, that we would be uh, bold and encouraging in our faith, and that we would do your will, that we would follow your mission and purpose. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.